So this week, I experienced the realness of spiritual warfare. This week, as I was working on the sermon text, as I was studying and preparing to preach, I was particularly tempted towards laziness and distractions. This text, it deals with love and work. And in the midst of studying, every time I was opening my Bible and getting deeper into the text, there was this inward desire inside of me to just want to stop and check my phone, check ESPN, get, in my, get on my email, doing everything else but working. The irony, I'm preparing to preach a sermon on work, and yet I am struggling, seeking to resist laziness. I talked to my wife about it, asked her to pray for me, and the Lord in his kindness gave strength to endure and resist the temptation. And as I was studying the text, it was hitting me hard. Beloved, pray for your pastors, especially as we engage in sermon prep. As I was studying this text, I was constantly reminded that we as pastors first need the word preached to us before it is preached through us. And we are in dire need of the word as much as the congregation. We are a part of the congregation. Before we are under shepherds, we are sheep. And the Lord was reminding me that I haven't arrived, and no pastor has arrived. But we are on this journey along with the congregation. And so this sermon, like all sermons that I'm, a, that I'm about to preach, I'm preaching to myself as well as I am preaching to you guys this morning. And in this text, we are dealing with love and work. So if you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. About brotherly love, you don't need me to write to you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. The big idea for this sermon from this passage is this. Love your church and labor to not burden them. Love your church and labor to not burden them. In this passage, we have two particular exhortations that I believe Paul is giving us. The first is he tells us to love continuously. And second, live honorably. 
Love continuously and live honorably. As stated last week, chapter 4 is a turning point in the book where he begins to give specific exhortations to this congregation in specific areas. Here we see that truth is to impact life. Beloved, sound doctrine and sound living, they go together. And this week, we'll be focusing on charity, loving one another. And the first exhortation is to love continuously. Now, this congregation, they have a reputation of loving one another. Think about chapter 3, verse 6. The report that Timothy gave to Paul, he gave good news concerning their faith and love. Well, at the end of chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, he began to pray for their love to abound. And here, he begins to speak on it. Look at verse 9, the first part, about brotherly love. The Greek word for brotherly love is philadelphios. It is love that is in the context of biological family. Now, when you think love in the context of biological family, don't think sibling rivalry, okay? This is real love that a family has and shares for one another. Where they look out for each other. They serve each other. They care for each other. They help each other and have each other's backs. It is from this Greek word that we have the English word Philadelphia, which is known as the city of brotherly love. Now, if you're a Cowboys fan or you're a fan of Ben Simmons, if you go to Philadelphia, you go experience everything but love. You get no love from them on these matters. What is stated and described about the city, it is true in the church. For the church is the family of God. Though we don't all look alike, we all have the same faith in the same Lord and have the same Father. By God's grace, our God and Father loved us with an eternal love and adopted us into his family in Christ Jesus. By his grace alone, the Spirit opened our eyes when we heard the gospel and granted faith in repentance and we placed our faith in the Lord Jesus. Beloved, when we received Christ, we were made sons and daughters of God. And we were made each other's brothers and sisters in the Lord. Which is why 19 times in this letter, the Apostle Paul, who is a Jew, refers to this predominantly Gentile congregation as brothers and sisters. It's because the church is a family it consists of a people of different sociological categories, from class to countries and culture, educational backgrounds and ethnic identities. And in this family, differences exist, but we are not known by our differences. Beloved, we are known by our love for one another. Jesus says in John chapter 13, verse 35, By this the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
This love is otherworldly, for you can't find it anywhere else in this world. It serves as an appetizer that points the world to the meal of the coming age. It is through the church that the world see God's redeeming and reconciling work in Christ Jesus. Which means, beloved, that we have a great responsibility to love one another as Jesus has loved us. To not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And by God's grace, this congregation understood it. Because look what Paul says next. About brotherly love, you don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God. Paul commended them for their love. He gave no corrections in this area. Instead, his comments were commendations. And he says that you were taught by God. They were transformed by the gospel that they heard. Their discipleship was evident as they genuinely and sincerely loved each other. And did you catch who their teacher was? God. Earlier this week, our brother Nicholas Thompson said that God is the greatest teacher. And in his school, we learn how to love. And God is able and the only one who is able to teach us how to love because he himself is love. 1 John chapter 4 verse 16 says that God is love. This very God who is love, he created us with the capacity to love. Our love for one another is to point each other to him. This is what theologians call communicable attributes. These are attributes that God possesses in infinite measure that he shares with humans to some degree. Paul says that they were taught by God. This likely alludes to Isaiah chapter 54 verse 13 where it says, Then all your children will be taught by the Lord. And this is a reality of the new covenant. For in Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 34 says, No longer will, you, will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. And by God's grace, we who are in Christ Jesus, we know the Lord. His law is written on our hearts. And so by his grace, by the power of the Spirit, we walk in love. It is by his grace alone that we aim to obey the command to love God with our whole being. And the second great command, to love our neighbor as ourself. God teaches us how to love. It's the fact that God being God and him being love means that he alone has the authority to define love. And he does that in his inspired word. Through his word, God defines and describes love. To love one is to selflessly give up oneself for the good of others. Think about John chapter 3, 16, chapter 3, verse 16. As I said a couple of weeks ago, for God so loved the world that he did what? Gave his only son 
that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Think about this morning's scripture reading of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It is known as the love chapter, and in it we see a description of love, that it is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Beloved, it is through the inspired word where God defined love and described love, and it is through the incarnate word, the Son of God in human flesh, Jesus Christ. It is through him where God's love was most visibly demonstrated. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 and 10 says, God's love was revealed among us in this way, that God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, it is through the death of Christ for our sins that God most visibly put his love on display. He sacrificed his one and only son. And don't think that Jesus loved us less because the scripture says that Christ loved us and gave himself for us. We are a loved people. Friends, if you're visiting us this morning and Know yourself to not be a Christian. I am glad that you are here. Friends, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God in his love gave his son to save sinners. And the way that he did it is by his son dying on the cross. And three days later resurrecting from the grave. All who turn from their sin and trust in him will be forgiven, will be saved by his grace. Friends, God alone defined love, he described love, and he demonstrated it by sending his son. Normally people say that to know that one is being real, they would say, put your money where your mouth is. Where God willingly did that by giving his son. Friends, I would would tell you and implore you this very day to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Be saved by the grace of God. Be forgiven and receive God's love in Christ. Do you want to talk more? You can talk with any of our members after service. Beloved, God is love, and he is the one who teaches us how to love. Now, this might not be popular in our day and age, but the reality is, beloved, love is a Bible word before it is a culture word. And our culture has always gotten it wrong as it relates to love. Think all the way back to slavery. Some of them would have said that it was loving to enslave African Americans. Fast forward all the way to segregation. They would have said it was loving to segregate people by the color of, based upon the color of one's skin. 
Fast forward all the way to 2022, the word love is now reduced to full-blown acceptance. That you can't disagree or have a different opinion than others. And you certainly cannot tell them that they're wrong. Beloved, that is not love. In this world's description of love, there is no objectivity. It is solely subjective and dependent upon the self. But what we see in Scripture is that love is objective. Think about what we read in the Scripture reading. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Beloved, God in his word, he defined it, he described it, he demonstrated in sending his son. And so anything contrary to God's word or his ways is not love, despite how many people may say that it is. And the reality is, if we seek to adhere to our culture's definition of love, they may be pleased, but God won't. And the question is, who are we aiming to please? And by God's grace, this congregation, they were doing well in loving one another. Paul commended them, and it just leads me to wonder for our congregation, beloved, how are we doing in loving one another? To make it even more personal, beloved, how are you doing in loving the church? How are you doing in selflessly giving up yourself to serve the body? Speaking the truth in love to encourage the body. Spending time with members in your congregation. Sharing meals together to do spiritual good and seeking to support one another to comfort and build up. Beloved, those who know you best, if they were to describe you, would the word love be used by your spouse, your children, your roommates, your friends, your coworkers? For beloved, Jesus commands us to love one another as he has loved us. Now we live in this body of flesh, so there are times where our love looks more like Janet Jackson's than Jesus's. Where instead of selflessly giving up ourselves for the good of the other, we first ask, what have you done for me lately? And not only in the context of the church, but also in the context of our own homes. Beloved, this mentality is not loving. And there is no place for it in the context of the church. For Jesus himself said that if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not tax collectors do the same. Beloved, it's because we've been loved greatly by God that we are to love one another. 1 John chapter 4, verse 11 says, Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. How are you doing in this, beloved? Paul, he goes on to give the congregation their flowers. Look at verse 10. 
He says, in fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. Like a flood, their love has spilled over and beyond their congregation to the entire region of Macedonia. That means Christians in Athens, in Berea, in Corinth, in Philippi, they were the benefactors of this congregation's love. Their service, hospitality, encouragement, and financial support. This young congregation had a reputation of loving the body. Their concerns exceeded their own congregation because they knew that the kingdom of God was bigger than their church. Beloved, how are we doing in loving, faithful churches in the city? Would we be known for our charity? Even towards congregations, faithful churches that differ from us. If we're going to be known for our love, we must speak well of them in public and in private. That doesn't mean there isn't an area to talk about our differences, but it does mean that we don't defame them because of our differences. And beloved, I must say that I am encouraged by, by God's grace, us loving other churches. We pray for them in a pastoral prayer. I hear you guys commending other churches in the city if someone lives close to them. That is encouraging, and I'm going to do what Paul does next. I'm going to encourage us, may we continue in this even more. And I'm encouraged by the ways that we love each other. Opening up our homes, seeking to serve in tangible ways, beloved, I just want to commend us to keep on doing it. Because that's exactly what Paul does. He gives the Thessalonians their flowers and then he commanded them to continue. Look at verse 10 again. In fact, you were doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia, but we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more. Paul here, just like in chapter 4, verse 1, he commands for their love to continue, for it to abound and overflow. The aim is that you may continue to love one another and others, for this pleases God. This also shows that we are growing in Christ-likeness, because we can't grow in sanctification and not grow in love. In fact, one of the ways that we grow in sanctification, it will be evident as we grow in loving one another. In fact, we had to look to Jesus, who is our standard and example. John chapter 15, verse 12 to 13, this is my command, love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. And here Paul is commanding us to do this even more. Now, beloved, if we're going to do this even more, it starts not with our hands. Because no matter how hard you try, we just can't go out there and just love people more by our own volition. It starts not with our hands, but, beloved, it starts with our heads and our hearts. We must first meditate on the gospel, meditate on God's love. And as we do that, the love of God warms our hearts. And it compels us to extend that very same love to others. 
I can't speak to you, for you, but I know from experience that the moments when I fail to love are the very same moments when I forget that I have been loved. I know when I am not meditating on the gospel because it shows itself in how I am unloving towards my spouse and my children. The Lord has kindness, convicts me of my sin, leads me to repentance, and I go and confess my sins to my wife and confess my sins to my children, asking for them to forgive me. Here Paul urges the congregation to abound and persist in loving one another. And beloved, if we're going to do this, we need the body. We need each other's prayers and encouragements and admonishments. Because we live in this body of flesh, prone to ourselves, we are left, well, given to ourselves, we are prone towards complacency. Where instead of continuing, we slow down in this. And we're also prone towards partiality. Where we begin to be selective towards who we're going to love. And neither of these things honors the Lord. So we need the body to pray for us in this, to encourage us, to encourage us to love impartially and to persist in these things. Beloved, how are you doing in loving continuously? Paul not only exhorts us to love continuously, we also see that he exhorts us to live honorably. Now, part of living, part of loving is living honorably. In this context, Paul is referring to work, manual labor, where we avoid being a financial burden to the congregation. Now, most members in that congregation, they worked hard. There were some who were idle. And the Apostle Paul here has them in mind as he gives these exhortations. The first thing he says is to seek to lead a quiet life, to make it your ambition to not be burdensome to the congregation. Now, quiet life here is not referring to a life of silence. It's not referring to being unnoticeable. It's not referring to quietly slipping in and slipping out of service. Instead, it's seeking to not intentionally be a financial burden to the church. Now, I want to be clear here. When he talks about burden, Paul is not referring to sin or struggles. Galatians chapter 6 verse 2 tells us that we are to carry one another's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. But here Paul is referring to financial burdens through idleness where members have the aptitude to work, and yet they refuse to do so. As a church, we have the responsibility to meet each other's needs and bear one another's burdens, for we are family. And what happened is there were some in the congregation who took advantage of this. They mooched off of the congregation. One commentator would say that they were parasites. They were an unnecessary burden because they refused to do work with their own hands. Beloved, it is unloving to deliberately be a burden to the church. Part of loving is living honorably, 
What it means is that not being dead weight, especially when you can carry your own weight. Burdening a people through laziness is selfish. It shows no regard for others. And it refuses to steward God's given abilities, what God has given, time and talents for God-honoring purposes like work. Paul begins to elaborate more when he says, the next part, he says, to mind your own business. Now, this is not an excuse to be a recluse. And it's not a reason to refuse to open up to the congregation because we're family. Remember, we must rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. What Paul is saying here is that don't squander time for manual labor and personal affairs that comes from labor. Don't squander that time on gossiping and meddling. Oftentimes when one is idle, there is an opportunity for gossip and meddling. And beloved, this is an improper stewardship of time. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Beloved, we are to have self-control with our speech, and we are to be good stewards of the time that God has given. We do this out of a love for the Lord in order to honor him and serve others. So what this means is that Paul is condemning one who is, he's condemning the actions of one being unemployed and yet spends countless hours scrolling on Twitter and Instagram looking for the latest drama. This time could be stewarded well to search for a job or seek to serve fellow brothers and sisters in the church or your neighbors. Look at what Paul says next. He says, and to work with your own hands. Paul commanded work. Back then, this was an agricultural society, so they didn't have manufacturers. They didn't have Silicon Valley. But they were to work. In fact, as he was among this congregation, he modeled this for them. Chapter 2, verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians says, For you know, brothers, for, matter of fact, let me not try to quote it. He says, For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. We preached God's gospel to you. Now, a few in the congregation, they weren't following Paul's example, so much so that in chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says, Warn those who are idle. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul kicked down the dough and got up in the grill of these few. If you will, turn with me. It's about one or two pages to your right. I'm going to read verses 6 all the way to 13 to show you that this is what Paul is getting at. He says, now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and toiled, 
working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. It is not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who are idle. They are not busy, but busy bodies. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. But as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. Paul is exhorting the congregation, the few, to stop being lazy, to stop mooching off the congregation, and to work with your own hands. Beloved, part of the reason why God gave us hands is so that we can use them constructively to serve, to help, to work. Now, back then and now, work is reprehensible. But the reality is, work is good. It's a part of the goodness of God's creation. In Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden to do what? To work it and watch over it. In fact, it is through work one of the ways that we image our God. Think about what he did in creation. He was working as he created the entire world. He created man in his image to be his vice regents, to rule creation on his behalf under his authority. Consider Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, where God commanded man, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. That subduing it takes effort. It takes strenuous effort and work. You folks who are into gardening and landscaping, you can amen that because you know that it takes work. And on that note, if you're into gardening and landscaping, man, come holler at me. Because my family, we need help. First-time homeowners, the yard don't look that good. In fact, Pastor Luke came by this past Friday night, and that was one of the comments he made when he first walked in the house. We can really use your help. It takes hard work, effort to subdue creation, to expand civilization. Now, when Adam rebelled against God, the ground was cursed, but work didn't become bad or sinful. Instead, it just became more difficult painful, and sometimes unfruitful. Where am I getting this from? Well, Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 19 says, God tells Adam, you will eat by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground. God still expected Adam to work. Beloved, work is a good thing. Our very own Lord was a carpenter before he entered into his public ministry. 
Ephesians chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 3 tells us that we are to work, and it also tells us the manner by which we are to work and the motive, our identity. He says, work as unto the Lord. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. He's telling bond servants, part of the will of God is to actually work and work unto God. And part of the purpose of work is to provide for oneself and one's family, to support the church and to serve those who are in need. These verbs can be captured in one word, loving, because you are looking not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. What this means is that Christians should not be involved in this pandemic of unwilling workers. Instead, we are to be the best and hardest workers. As the gospel has transformed our life and it impacts every area of our life, and that includes our work and our work ethics. Beloved, we are to be exemplary in our attitude and our ethics. Our aim is to honor the Lord because he loved us and saved us, and we do it to his glory. And we also do it to love and serve others. What this means is that there is no place for Christian adults to be all-day gamers and shoppers. It would be shameful for us to be great in these areas and terrible employees. Parents, how are you doing in raising your kids and explaining to them the goodness of work? Modeling it before them and involving them in appropriate ways around the home. Teaching them that a way to love others is to contribute to the upkeep of the home. For, beloved, our homes are our training grounds for our children. Speaking of children, let me address the kids in the congregation, in our gathering. Now, I know that making the bed or cleaning your room or taking out trash might not be the most exciting thing, might not be your favorite thing to do. I know from experience, in case you didn't know, I was once a kid. And not only that, I'm an adult and I still don't like doing those things. But I want you to know, kids, that work is a good thing. It's a good way to use what God has given us. And we should honor him in our work. And one way that we honor him is by doing it right away, all the way, and with a loving heart. That's what our Lord Jesus did in regards to the Father. He did Everything the Father commanded him. He did it right away and all away, and he did it out of a love for his Father. All the way to the point of the greatest work he accomplished, dying on the cross for our sins. So children, when your mommy and daddy ask you to work, ask you to clean up, I would encourage you to do it right away, all the way, and with a loving heart. For these things honor God. 
Beloved, we see that we are commanded to work. Work is a good thing. If one end is idleness, we must be on guard against swinging on the other end of the pendulum, being idolatry, idolizing work. Now, beloved, work is a good thing, but it is a terrible, terrible, terrible God. With work, we're to support our family and serve the church, but we are not to sacrifice our family and sacrifice our church and neglect them for the sake of work. That will be dishonoring the Lord. So, beloved, may we warn one another of idleness. May we work with excellence and encourage it, but may we also be watchful of idolatry as it pertains to work. In our final verse, we see the purpose of Paul's instruction. Look at verse 12. So that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. We're commanded to live decently before unbelievers. Laziness is reprehensible and it is an improper reflection of Jesus Christ. Out of a love for the Lord, we don't want to bring reproach to his name. Beloved, we're to be model citizens and model employees. Loving God and neighbor being set apart. And that is to articulate, that impacts our work and our work ethics. It is to be commendable. Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 5 verse 16, let your light shine so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Beloved, we are to be mindful that unbelievers are watching us. But more importantly than that, God is watching us. He is examining our hearts. So may our aim be to honor and glorify him out of a love for him in obedience to what he has commanded. Well, this means that not only must we work, but our work, we are to be exemplary in it. We are to be on time. We are to speak lovingly to those we work with and work around. And we're to refuse to engage in the gossip and slander that may take place in the workplace. And we're to be repentant when we do engage. Beloved, part of honoring God means that we actually work on the clock. This means that we're not deceptive in having a window up of entertainment on our screen and then quickly switch over to work when someone walks by us. Our gospel is offensive to unbelievers. The way we live is different. Beloved, may our work life not be off-putting. How are you doing in living honorably, especially in the area of work? Paul gives another purpose, and the main purpose, he says, and not be dependent upon outsiders. Not not be dependent on anyone. Once again, he's referring to being an unnecessary financial burden to the church. Now, I want to be clear. Paul is not rebuking anyone who is unable to work due to some sort of disability. He's rebuking those who have the capabilities to work and yet who are unwilling. 
The exhortation is to not be a financial burden to the church when you can work. One way to love others and live honorably is by working to support oneself when you can. Love it. Loving others means that we don't seek to cause unnecessary burdens on the church. Instead, we labor to prevent burdens by looking to the interest of others. The only way that we do that is by working and working hard. God has given us the ability to work. We're to do it out of a love for him and for others. May our love be evident not only in our work, but in our work ethics. Working unto him for his glory. Serving him with gladness and serving others. This is part of what it means to live honorably. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do praise you for your love. It is an everlasting, eternal love. God, and by your grace, you have given us abilities to show love. And one way that we show love is by living honorably and working hard. Lord, help us in this by your grace, for we need your strength. We need your grace. We need your spirit's help, for we are prone to wander and tempted towards laziness. But by your grace and the power of your spirit, we can work wholeheartedly unto you. Help us, O oh Lord. This in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.